and welcome to episode 36 of When Life Gives You Lemons, Go Vegan. I'm your host, Corinne Nidja, and today is something different. If you're a long-time listener, you know that this podcast is where I interview and share people's stories of how they overcame diseases such as multiple sclerosis, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, rheumatoid arthritis, and so many more after adopting a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet. And this week is no exception, except that this week it is my story. And if you have been following me on social media, you'll know that I found this really hard to do, although I wanted to introduce myself properly and really go into depth because normally I just bang, 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 bang my story out really quickly talking about, you know, I had MS, now I don't have MS. You know, I, I had this, now I don't have this or whatever, really fast. But I wanted to really go into depth. And I did record this previously and decide that it just wasn't right. So I'm trying again today. And I hope that this one is a bit more easy to digest and unrushed. So hopefully my children won't rock up at the end <laughs> and make me hurry. Okay, so I am nervous and I under, I appreciate all my guests so much more because now I'm in the hot seat and it is so much more nerve-wracking when you're in the hot seat than when you're the interviewer. I kind of wanted to approach this episode talking about it as signposts to disease because there are signposts to disease and I think that they are so often overlooked as just aging or as just part of life or as just something to medicate and ignore and push to the side. And when I look back at my life and when I recorded this interview previously, I realised that there were signposts, there were signposts to a future disease, an upcoming disease. And if we're, most people in society, myself included, we're waiting for this, the gun to go off, you know, this gun of disease to go off in our lives. We're all waiting. Um, whether it's conscious or not, we are waiting for the penny to drop, the other shoe to drop, whatever it is in our health. We're waiting before we make changes. You know, most people in these podcast episodes will say, you know, that they, that they were waiting. They, they, there probably was many, many signposts along the way, obesity, weight gain, angina, eczema, rashes, allergies, asthma, headaches, bloating, digestive issues, constipation. They were all happening to probably most of my guests prior to the heart attack, prior to the arthritis, prior to the Crohn's disease, prior to the ulcerative colitis, prior to the MS. There were signposts. And I'm, I'm hoping in these episodes, rather than thinking, just thinking, oh, well, if I get these diseases, I'll adopt a whole food plant-based diet. If you see these symptoms, if you see these signposts, start now before you see the signposts. Ideally, children like my children and other children out there who are raised eating this way won't have to see these signposts. They, won't nev- they will never experience these signposts of disease. And they'll just live amazing, happy, long, healthy lives. But This episode, I wanted to talk about signposts. So the signposts throughout my life and leading up to me getting MS and then what I've done to help recover from all of the many, many (laughs) signposts that I had to be in the incredible health that I have now, where I feel amazing 
and wonderful and can't imagine living life any other way than the way I live and eat now. I hope that makes sense. Though, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's going to be a journey for me and I hope it's not too tangential. Tangential? Is that a word? <laughs> I hope that it is it cohesive and in order and makes sense rather than me just going off on tangents constantly. All right, here goes. Wish me luck. So... I was born in 1979. (laughs) Let's start at the very beginning. My mother often, well, she used to talk about how she ate nothing but hamburgers and milkshakes, hamburgers with a lot and milkshakes when she was pregnant with me. And diet is important in pregnancy. And bless, bless my mother's cotton socks. I love her to bits. She wanted me, she loved me, but diet just back in those 70s wasn't a, wasn't a major concern to anyone. They just, people just ate whatever they wanted. She didn't like vegetables. She loved milkshakes and hamburgers, so she just ate whatever she wanted. And it was that, top, that mindset of you're eating for two, when you're pregnant, eat whatever you want, which we're starting to realize is utter rubbish. And when you're pregnant, you should eat healthy, delicious whole plant foods and take care of yourself and not just think that you're a bin for chocolate and sweets and cakes and junk food, which I did for my first pregnancy, which I was glad to know better and do better in my second pregnancy. And it was a much better pregnancy as a result. So she ate like that. I was born 10 pounds, which may have just been what I was meant to be born, or it may also have been because of the diet that I received in utero. Um, But that started my journey as the biggest baby in the nursery, all my cousins and aunts, everyone laughed and joked that I was like lovingly that I was the biggest baby in the nursery. But as a child, it still stung when they would say that because it did feel like they were saying that I was fat, even though they were saying it laughing and smiling and thinking that it was sweet and that I was a chubby baby and that was adorable. I didn't take it that way. It didn't, it didn't feel that way to me. So it wasn't, intended that way, but it didn't feel that way. So I was the biggest baby and I continued to be in my family the the biggest child. Um, Even though I was the youngest, I was an obese child, but I was overweight for my whole childhood. And that led to teasing from within my family and constant remarks on what I was eating. Should I be eating this? You know, my grandparents would make jokes when I was driving in the car that I had to get out because it slowed the car down if we were going up a steep hill. And, you know, that I was a pig, that I shouldn't eat like this, that I was fat. And that was within my family. Now, it was a lot. I think a lot of families have these kind of jokes that are like never. My friend always says never a truer word was spoken jest. I don't know where he got that from, but saying that they're laughing, saying something that is true about me and thinking it's a joke, making it a joke so it doesn't sting me so much, but it still stings. You still feel it even though if it's said in a joking manner. And um, it stung and they would say it all the time. And they were worried about me. My parents were very worried about me being overweight, but none of them knew back then what to do or how to help me. So they just talking about me being fat was their idea of if she knows that she's fat, maybe she'll somehow magically resolve this problem herself. But as an eight-year-old, seven-year-old, six-year-old, you know, 
I was completely incapable. I was completely unaware of how nutrition impacted my health. I was unaware. I didn't know how to cook. I didn't, I didn't shop for myself. I didn't make the food choices in my life. And if I did, I didn't make sensible ones. So when I went to school, my mother had already had two. Uh, my older siblings are much older than me. So by the time I got to primary school, she was sick of making lunches that nobody would eat. And as a mother of a six-year-old a six boy now, I get it because my husband and I often joke about just putting fake fruit in the lunchbox because <laughs> he's not eating it anyway. We just keep putting the same fruit in over and over again. Now, he does eat fruit. And all the time, but he's so distracted and wanting to play. And I remember that myself as a kid. You know, you're just so busy thinking about playing that food isn't your number one priority. So she was so sick of making them that by the time I came around, I think she made me one lunch and then she said, all right, you're all having money from now on. And I get it as a parent. You're just like, what, what, what argument, what problem can I solve the quickest? Money will solve this problem of the lunchboxes. Um... So she gave me money from prep, grade prep, which is the youngest, if you're listening to this from a different country, this is the youngest, you know, schooling age apart from kinder, the first year of schooling. And from then I made my own choices for those hours of schooling. And my choices were terrible. They were twisties, which is a cheese chip kind of bizarre, twisted, deformed chip covered in cheese powder, bright orange, delicious. I thought so back then. And Paddle Pops Rainbow was my favourite, but I'd mix it up with chocolate, you know, just for funsies. Sometimes I'd have a pie, very rarely. Sometimes I would have a different icy pole because I could get more bang for my buck if I got more icy poles. And I I can't remember getting, I think every now and again I'd make a healthy choice, very rarely. But mostly it was twisties and Paddle Pops, chips, pies, that was it for 14 years of schooling. And so my weight increased along those years. Because when I got home from school, my snacks after school, I would have had toast, white bread toast with Vegemite before school with butter, heaps of butter. And then I would have had twisties and paddle pops for lunch. And then I would have had white bread or toast or baked potato with covered in butter and cheese after school as my after-school snack or an omelette I'd make in the microwave with tons of cheese singles shredded into it, but butter, milk, cheese, omelette in the microwave as my after-school snack, which is a big snack after school for a kid. Now, I was hungry and growing, but I didn't need all of that saturated animal fats at all. And then I would probably skip the veggies in my dinner and just eat the carbs and the meat portion and that would be it. And over the years of eating that way, eating that terrible way, which I now like cringe and I'm so sad about, I got fatter. You know, I got more and more overweight and gained more and more fat on my body. And the symptoms and signposts started. So the first signpost for me was the weight gain. You know, I was gaining weight as a child. I wasn't in a thriving young child's body. By the time I was 12, I was tired, easily tired. You know, I was getting really exhausted and everyone just put it down to hormones, to teenage, adolescence, growing, growing into an adult, that teenage period, you get more tired. But I was, I I could bet my bottom dollar that a lot of my reasons why I was so tired was because my diet was so poor and nutrient bereft. So the fatigue and the weight gain were the first signposts for me um, that something was wrong in my in my, with my health. So then 
The teasing at school started. Boys would tease me. Boys didn't want to go out with me. You know, boys would, you know, people would say, you'd be pretty if you weren't so fat. You know, we would go out with you if you weren't so fat. I don't like fat girls. Otherwise, you're really pretty. You know, you shouldn't wear that because fat people can't wear that. You shouldn't, this is from girls, you know, you shouldn't do this activity because fat people don't do that activity. You look fat when you run, when you, when you run, you know, you make the ground shake, you know, all these different things, you know, they would make, they would joke when I was playing sport and tease me. And it wasn't all because I was fat. I was also uncoordinated. (laughs) Whatever. I've gotten better. (laughs) But I'm just laughing for my friends. So I stopped playing sport because it was embarrassing because people would tease me, people would comment and I hated the feeling of my body moving. It was hard. It was heavy. I was humiliated in my sports clothes. I was humiliated moving my body because it wasn't an athletic body. It was an overweight body. I was really embarrassed. So you stop playing. And that's another signpost because kids stop playing because they're embarrassed and uncomfortable. They stop wanting to run and play and climb because their bodies don't feel good when they exercise and they are worried about being teased. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. All of these things. So we become more and more withdrawn, especially physically. I remember my close friends' parents were athletic and they would want me to get involved and I just did not want to move. I did not want to embarrass myself. I did not want to. I felt so ashamed it's just an awful feeling. So then you start to get depression as a young person. I think that most of my depression started in primary school when I realized I was overweight. You know, in grade five, I was like, wow, I'm overweight. And a girl said, you know, you shouldn't wear this because you're overweight. You should wear a jumper that covers your big bottom. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm a fat person. Oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed. How can I go through the rest of the day at school wearing this now that I know that I'm not supposed to wear it because I'm a fat person? Now, I'm not saying that this is – I'm not trying to shame anyone who is overweight listening. I'm just talking about my own experience, and this is how I felt as a child. This is why I care so much when I see overweight children now because I've been there And I know that they're struggling, even if they're super body confident and their parents are like, you know, baby, you're so beautiful. It doesn't matter what size you are. That's all true. But when you're in that body and it's your child and your friends can run, they can use the monkey bars, they can do all these things that you can't do. It just sucks. It just sucks. There's no way to frame it. There's no way to, you know, you can't polish it. It sucks to be a kid and unable to play, unable to run, unable to do the things and wear the things and enjoy life like your like your friends can, and unable to make those changes yourself without the help of a parent, a knowledgeable parent who knows about nutrition and exercise and you know mindfulness even in a perfect world. There's just no way. There's no hope for that child, and they feel hopeless because the caregivers. They know that they're unable to help them and it's all on their shoulders. And that's a heavy weight to bear. Even though your parents love you so much, as mine did, you know, it's a really heavy weight to bear. So in, in adolescence, by the time we, I remember my family used to go to the to holiday in Queensland every winter with my brother who was very sick with muscular dystrophy. And, you know, I didn't want to go to the beach. My parents would say, we're at the beach, you know, enjoy it. And I was thinking, oh my God, I would enjoy it, but I'm overweight. I don't want any kids to see me, my bathers. I don't want any boys to see me. I don't want anyone to know that I exist 
in a bather, <laughs> in bathers, because I'm so utterly mortified. So I used to literally wear huge coats up in Queensland when it was hot to hide my body and to just to just to give the impression that I didn't feel cold, hot, didn't feel hot, that I didn't need to wear bathers because I was feeling cold enough to wear a huge coat so that no one would ask me to put my bathers on so no one would bother me. And it became hard. It was hard because I was ashamed of myself. I was embarrassed. I had such low self-worth. So by the time I got to 15, I started getting headaches and constipation, which made me feel even less valuable and worse. And the pain started in my head. It would take weeks out of, I'd have a headache for two weeks at a time. I'd be in the dark with blinds closed. Another signpost, my body's saying something's wrong, something's wrong which we just, I just dulled that with painkillers like you do. And the doctors didn't know what was wrong. It just, you know, but it was a signpost. I haven't had headaches since I made these changes to my diet. The headaches started, the hemorrhoids started, you know, the constipation started, the weeks going 10 days without going to the toilet, the pain from that. You know, I had to go in an ambulance to hospital in high school because they thought I had appendicitis. I thought I had appendicitis. I didn't know what it was, but I was in so much agony. I had to go to the hospital, to the emergency. <laughs> My appendix was fine, but I was so constipated. It was so painful. I had to take laxatives, which was just, it was, excru- I can't describe how excruciating. So I became terrified. So it, sometimes it wasn't that I was constipated. I would be holding on to avoid going because I thought it was going to be so painful. So I experienced that constipation until I was 26 and started to meet my husband now, but my boyfriend then and started to incorporate more vegetables and whole plant foods into my diet. And then going started to suddenly, miraculously, suddenly when I was eating whole plant foods, going started to become easy and effortless and incredible. And now I have no problem with it. But for ten over 10 years, I was so terribly constipated. On two occasions, I had to use my hands it's called manual evacu- evacuation, which was absolutely horrifying as a teenager and then as a woman in my 20s, having to scoop my own poo out with my fingers because there was no other way. It was just so compacted, so huge. It was a nightmare. And doing that was felt like absolute rock bottom. Like I was just like, you are the most revolting. That's how I felt. You're the most revolting, disgusting, overweight human in all of existence and no one can ever love you. And that's how it feels. And that doesn't make sense to your average person. But when you're so overweight and you're so constipated and you're scooping out your own shit, you don't feel lovable. You can't imagine why anyone would want to be with you. You don't kind of say why anyone would want to have a family with you or have a future with you. You just feel like the most worthless person on the face of the earth. So the depression in that that is it's a signpost. You know what I mean? It's a signpost. Wow, you know something awful is happening within my body right now. I feel so without hope. You know, I used to talk to my parents about it and my friends about it. Like, well, close, close parents and not all the time. I just felt in my gut that I was going to have a really short life because life didn't feel like it was worth living. I just felt like 
oh my gosh, like I'm going to die in my 20s. Like I can't live like this. I don't want to live like this. And I truly believe that for a long time, like there's no way I can go on feeling this unhappy and this being in this body that seems so sick. So the depression and the weight and the constipation and the headaches were a huge signpost, huge signpost that something was wrong, something was wrong, but no one can see it because people don't want to say, they don't want to re- they don't want to acknowledge those things because then they have to look at themselves and they're there's just so many factors and it just is a societal thing now that 70% of our population is overweight. It's just the norm. You know, this is just normal. You know, don't rock the boat. Don't recommend healthy healthy eating. And, and what is healthy eating? To most people, healthy eating is egg white omelets, salmon and you know, now at the moment, it's, you know, coffee with butter in it and grass-fed beef and all these things are, 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 the, are the healthy alternatives, but, but, but then they have no fibre in them. They have nothing in them that's going to get you unconstipated or get your body moving or give you energy to thrive, you know. So what doctors may have recommended to me back then was probably eat some more vegetables, but also eat, you know, dairy, meat, eggs, seafood, which... You know, I, I, I don't have any belief that they're health promoting foods at this time in my life. And they definitely weren't helping me and removing those foods from my diet drastic, radically transformed my health for the better and the health of all of the guests on my show and more guests to come. There was no help for me back then. And so then once I got to 18, 18 and I was sexually active, I started to get more and more. I don't know if you have to be sexually active to get candida outbreaks, to be honest, but I'm just telling, telling you I was sexually active. <laughs> and I started to get regular candida outbreaks and bacterial outbreaks. Um, and the candida would be every single month and my period would come and it would kind of heal the bacteria, the bacteria, sorry, the candida for like a week while the period was there and then it will be back with a vengeance. And so I'd be taking regular monthly doses of the caniston creams and the pessaries, they're called, to kind of get on top of this candida without thinking about my diet and without thinking how that was impacting, just thinking there's medicine for it, there's medicine for it, there's medicine for it, and ignoring the signpost that my gut health was terrible. You know, my gut was saying, these paddle pops and twisties you've been eating have not been sustaining us. Oh my God. I was also started smoking at 18. Um, so there was a lot going on with my health. I was drinking energy drinks. I was working night shifts and shift work and it was full on. So I had this candida that was going for almost like eight years of candida, which is just an itchy, horrendous, disgusting nightmare, which goes on top again of the worthlessness and the, oh my gosh, I'm unlovable and repulsive. And during that time, I um, started to then get chronic pain. So by the time I was 18, I was already obese, clinically obese. My doctor had written it on the form, obese, which is, I don't know if you've ever been clinically diagnosed as obese, but it isn't anyone's highlight of their life. It's always, oh, like I knew I was overweight, but being told you're obese by a medical professional just is like a knife through your chest. 
And so it was, I was 18 and I remember seeing my ex-boyfriend as I walked out, this guy that had broken my heart that I thought was the world. I bumped into him as I walked out of the doctor's appointment where he's told me I was obese. And this guy hadn't broken up with me. Well, he hadn't said he'd broken up, he'd broken up with me because I was overweight, but he'd broken up with me. He was older than me and, you know, I was in high school still and he was wanting to party. But I remember seeing him and just being like, oh, my God, this is the last person I need to see when I've just been told I'm obese. <sighs> I want, yeah, you want, to, you want to bump into your ex being super hot, ripped with this amazing partner, having this career of your dream. <laughs> Well, your ego needs that, you know, like maybe if you're a divine, amazing Zen person, you don't need that. But my ego at 18 desperately needed to bump into my ex-boyfriend, super hot, not you're just being told you're clinically obese. <laughs> and you've also got like candida and you're super itchy downstairs. <laughs> it was not ideal. So... On went my adult years and the pain started, as I said, and I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. I was working as a carer in residential units for people with intellectual and physical disabilities. I loved that job so much. I met some wonderful people there, but it became so hard for me to do the work because I had to clean showers and, and help people in the shower and lift people into you know with hoists and do dishes and all those things, which is what you have to do around the house to maintain the house. But um, my, I couldn't, my shoulders felt like they were locked. They were in so much pain. I had tender points over my whole scalp, my whole, every single part of me hurt. And so I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia and I just lived off painkillers. There was really nothing that they could do about it. At the time, this was when I was, it was 2002, they were just like, this is just the flip side of, chronic fatigue syndrome, you're exhausted and in agony all the time. We don't know why it happens. We don't know how to address it. This is just your lot. Try and rest if you can. Which sucked because I was now, yeah, 20 and I was 22 when I was diagnosed and obese and single and miserable with regular hemorrhoids, constipation, all those things. So it's just getting worse and worse, as you can tell. By the time I was 24, I just continued my climb and I woke up and I was smoking away and drinking cans of V and having McDonald's drive through and all those things. 24, I woke up from my morning shift at work with pins and needles down the right-hand side. Now, sometimes I say left-hand side because I just never – I used to have to get told which was my left and right in Twister. <laughs> and so I think I just say whichever one comes into my head. But – it was my right-hand side of my face and the, my right forearm. So I woke up with it in my face and I thought I'd had a stroke. But my dad and my co-workers were like, no way, you're 24. Don't be ridiculous. You're a hypochondriac. You're crazy. La, la, la. And I was thinking, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe I've just pulled my neck somehow. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense, but it feels really weird. And then I went over to do... Um, make the bed of one of my clients. And as I was tucking the blankets in under his bed, my forearm, my forearm, like a, like a, like a waterfall, the sensation came over my arm, like from my fingertips, it just rippled down to my elbow and I could no longer feel that part of my arm. Well, it was like pins and needles in that type of, in that place in my arm. And I went back 
to, to the break with my co-workers and they were like, you haven't had a stroke. I'm like, look at this. This has happened to my arm now. I'm having a stroke. And they're like, your back's out. Just get a massage. You'll be fine. I was like, I'm pretty sure I've had a stroke. And you'll be laughing when I find out that I have had a stroke. You'll feel terrible for taking the piss out of me. But I was laughing, you know, thinking like, yeah, they're probably right and I'm just being ridiculous, but okay. So I went to the doctor and the first doctor, which is one of the reasons why I get a second, I say say get a second, third, fourth, fifth opinion, because even though it's expensive to get those opinions sometimes, if you don't use go to a bulk billing place, second opinions can be good because I went to this guy and he was like, did did like, like some sensation tests on my arms and then he's like, nothing's wrong with you. I can't help you. I'm sure it will just go away. And he sent me home. And I was like, oh, all right. And everyone was like, see, you're fine. And I thought, well, maybe. What, but why does it feel horrendous? But I went back to work and continued on as normal. And about a week and a half later, it was still there, the feeling, the no feeling in my face and in my arms. And my dad's like, duck. He calls me duck. It's a long story. Duck, you have to get a second opinion. <laughs> I was like, all right. So I went to a different doctor and this one sent me off for a CAT scan and the CAT scan showed a black hole in my brain about the size of a 20 cent piece. And he said, you have had a stroke, um, but we're sending you off for a MRI scan just to confirm, just so we can be sure what exactly we're dealing with, that kind of thing. And so I just, you know, was, I was, was two feelings. One was like wanting to stick it to my coworkers really badly because they just didn't believe me. (laughs) I was like, I definitely have had a stroke. And so when he said it, I was like, yes, I love being right so much. Doesn't even bother me that I've had a stroke right now because I'm just so looking forward to going back into work and just sticking it to them that they were wrong, so terribly wrong. I have a dark sense of humour, in especially in bad, bad times. I don't know if it's for my career or you know my brother living with a brother who was dying. The two things combined formed the Voltron and made my sense of humour twisted and dark. So I did go to work and tell them that they were wrong and but at the same time I was kind of like well if this is as bad as the, the stroke you kind of think we've had the stroke I seem to be pretty good like I'm able to work and function it should go away hopefully but I'm pretty high functioning for a stroke so I wasn't that worried about the stroke that sounds like I should have been but I was young <laughs> now if I had one I'd be like oh you know maybe I should change my diet but um then I was like well I've had a stroke it's done okay, now I can just make the jokes about how people can stroke my stroke and make them feel very terrible about laughing at my stroke. So I did that. But then I went to have the MRI and the funniness fell away very quickly as they told me that it wasn't a stroke, that it was multiple sclerosis because MRI is much more able to go into much more depth about what's going on with your brain and see a better picture. And the picture that it did see was about 40, it seemed like 40 lesions on my brain. So scarring, multiple sclerosis means multiple scars. There was multiple scarring on my brain. So multiple sclerosis, if you don't know, it's your older, your immune system, they believe is attacking the myelin sheath, which is the fatty sheath around the nerve 
nerves in your brain and spinal cord. So when it, atta- it attacks those that myelin, eventually it breaks through and it damages the nerve. Um, and whatever nerve it damages, it like when it's active, obviously, is where you get the physical symptoms. So I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Or the sensory sensory changes or physical symptoms or or whatever. So it might be that it had damaged the sensation in my brain, in my cheek, and then down my arm. So for other people, it can be their optic nerve behind their eye. It can be anything. It can be your continence. It can be whatever. So that's what happened to me. And then that was what was diagnosed. That's what happens to people with MS. They The damage is happening to their nerves and in their brain and the spinal cord, and then they lose control of parts of their body until most people it it heals a bit when you have an attack we so it has an attack and then a remitting stage like relapsing remitting it's called so you have a relapse then you remit and sometimes you heal almost back to normal and then you have another one another one another one another one and it normally becomes secondary progressive ms some people get primary progressive ms where it just progresses constantly gets worse and worse constantly for most people it just gets worse slowly but eventually, for most people with MS, the outcome is, you know, significant disabilities, wheelchairs, walking frames, care, being, you know, relying on caring, carers, that type of thing. And often the, a shortened lifespan is a consequence of side effects of the multiple sclerosis, so pneumonia, infections, that type of thing. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it's an autoimmune disease and it's not, it's not at all funny, so I didn't... The stroke I could make jokes out of this wasn't funny at all. So I was terrified. He told me I had MS. He told me about the injections that you could have and the treatments and that they were every day for the rest of your life. And even though that they can't, even though they doctor, medical professionals can't predict the frequency of attacks or the severity of attacks, these medications somehow could reduce the frequency and severity of attacks, which to me made no sense. I don't know how you can test a drug if you can never predict the frequency of attacks, that it is helping the frequency and severity of attacks. It didn't make any sense to me, and I hated needles. So when you're saying this, I'm like, so the worst, this is the worst possible thing for me. And it was the worst possible thing for me because at the same time, my brother Brett was desperately unwell with um, muscular dystrophy. So when I was 24 and diagnosed, my brother was 29 and dying with muscular dystrophy. So he was in a wheelchair. When, just after I was diagnosed, he had a tracheotomy put in because he could no longer breathe uh, independently. His muscles had deteriorated so much. It's a muscle-wasting disease. He couldn't breathe. He couldn't eat without choking. So he had a peg feed, a peg like a feeding tube inserted into his stomach. So he was uh, breathing at night with the help of a ventilator. We were having to suction his throat regularly, stopping from drowning in fluid in his chest. So for my parents, it was just the worst timing. And for my brother, because, you know, he died a year later. So he died when I was 25. So it this MS diagnosis for us and for my parents and for me was just like, are you kidding me? We're just finishing this most traumatic 30 years watching Brett 
slowly fade away before our eyes. And now we're starting again with me watching the almost identical journey of increasing disability and illness and suffering until I die. And would my parents then have to be my carer? You know, my parents have spent 30 years waking up every hour to roll Brett, to massage Brett, to toilet Brett, to bath Brett, to feed Brett, you know, to the whole lives were around him. And, you know, like it was just unending suffering for for Brett to watch Brett. And it was it hurt all of us to be witnessing his suffering, you know, to to bear witness to it. So it was just, oh, my gosh, just such a shocking blow. So I don't know. I, I don't want to rush through this because there's so much, but I don't want to go on about it too long either. So I did nothing but, like, sit in terror for about two weeks. <gasps> two weeks in the mail I got some information from MS Australia just saying about the interferon drugs, all the research, what MS is, you know, what's what the future looks like for a person with MS. And in that packet, pack that care pack, information pack, was um, information about the Dr. Roy Swank's study into diet and multiple sclerosis, which they don't send out now, I don't think. They may again, but they didn't for a while. And I read the research about his study where he put his wife got MS and so he was very keen to find a, a, a cure, a treatment for her. So he did some research into, you know, with the, with the countries that have the least amount of MS and they live in colder climate. The colder, colder climates have more. The closest co- climates closer to the equator have less MS. The hotter climates, they have more of a plant-based whole food diet because it's hot and they want to eat more fruits and they eat more whole grains. They eat this kind of diet. They eat less heavier fat meats in the colder climates like Melbourne, Victoria do. So he put her on a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet. Now, he did include some egg later on. I think it was after one year. He did include some chicken after one year. Um, He included some seafood for omega-3s because those populations eat some seafood. And they also get vitamin D. So I think he included vitamin D in his recommendations, but I may be blurring his um, recommendations and Dr. George Jelinek's from the Overcoming Multiple Sclerosis website and his book Overcoming Multiple Sclerosis and his research, which is a expanded version of the Swank diet, including some more holistic stuff like mindfulness and vitamin D and meditation and those types of things. So I highly recommend reading, reading, reading if you have MS. It's a great, great, great resource and it changed my life, saved my life. So I read that and I was like, this makes sense to me. This makes sense diet. You know, looking back at what I've eaten, what I put into my body, this makes sense. But my brother's dying and I'm grieving. And so it was very difficult for me. So I was listening to my neurologist who kept saying, there's no science to diet, eat whatever you want. And I wanted to eat whatever I wanted. So there was some yo-yoing and back and forth because in 2005, we lost Brett to MD and that you know, I, we were a very close family by the end of his disease and I was destroyed. He was like my best friend. 
So I helped him plan his funeral. I helped him plan everything. But the day he died, I lost, I lost the plot. I lost the plot for a while. I was was already sick. I was already depressed. I had no self-worth. And then I lost my best friend and I wanted, you know, I really wanted to go with him which sounds crazy, but I really did. I didn't want him to be alone. I'd been with him, caring for him for so long. I wanted to go with him on that journey as well. So it was a really hard place and it was so hard to watch my parents lose him and to watch them stand by his bed when he turned off his life support. Just to watch them for, you know, it took five hours for him to die. It was the hardest day of our lives. And I just, he wanted to live so bad, like, so bad. He loved life so much until the very end, but he was in so much pain. So I really felt like, oh my God, I can't do this again to my parents. They can't watch me hold my hand while I'm dying again. You know, they can't, they're too tired and exhausted to care for me again. They can't go through this again. You know, I can't, I have to live for Brett. I have to do my best for him. You know, I have to have the life he didn't get to have. I have to have more of a life because he didn't get to. I have to have double the life that anybody else has because I have to have one for me and I have to have one for Brett. And... I have to have one for my parents because they deserve to have some peace now. They deserve to have some rest now. They deserve to care for themselves now. But, you know, I had to take some time to grieve. So I didn't make change. You know, I, I, I yo-yoed about. My medical advice was don't worry about diet. My depression, grief, sadness was, gosh, just, just do whatever it takes to get out of bed because getting out of bed was really hard at that time. So I kept doing whatever I wanted. In 2006, I met my husband and he was so positive and inspired and he was well into a health journey from his own life. And so he helped me start eating whole foods and he really supported me to eat to adopt this way of eating but he didn't lecture me when he knew that I was still smoking and he knew I was still eating crap he just loved me and kept putting healthy plant foods in front of me (laughs) as much as he could and he helped they his family helped support me to go to the Gawler Foundation's MS retreat with Dr. George Jelinek focused for a week on his MS retreat which was incredible I learned so much but I was still not in the right place for me. And so I wanted to mention that because I wish that I was just like, I went home and I was perfect. And from then on, my life was amazing. I went home and I still had to work on myself. I still had to build some self-worth and some self-love before I was ready. And unfortunately, there were so many signposts, as you know, already that I should have been like, ooga, 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 change your diet, change your diet, change your diet. You're constipated. You got headaches. But I didn't, you know, I had so much going on. Um, And I just didn't. So it was in 2008. I had this huge exam. I was super stressed. And, you know, two years, it was just under two years had passed since the MS retreat and three years since my brother had died. And I had the biggest 
MS attack of my life. I woke up completely numb from the waist down. So I couldn't feel myself go to the bathroom. I couldn't feel my legs. I couldn't feel my feet. I couldn't know if, didn't know if my shoe was half on or half off. I didn't know if my undies were pulled up. I couldn't know if I was doing a poo. I couldn't feel my vagina. I couldn't feel anything from the waist down. And that was terrifying terrifying. I didn't know anything. Everything was awful. Um, I thought my husband should break up with me. It impacted on our relationship so much. And I want to mention this because so many people with chronic disease, it just does impact on our relationships, on our sex drive, on our self-esteem, on our wanting to be intimate with our partners, wanting to be committed to our partners. Because for me, it was like, if you can be with me, you must be insane because I've watched my brother die for 30 years of my life, for 25 years of my life. If to choose that, you must be mental because I would never choose to go through that again. I would never choose that life again. That is just misery. Now, I'm not, that sounds horrible and harsh, but I guess it's okay to go through that once, <laughs> but I just felt like it wasn't okay to go through that twice or to choose to go through that. It just seemed like insanity. I know we all have to watch our, you know, everyone's going to have to deal with death eventually. And now I'm in such a better place with it. But then I was like, still so, I had PTSD and I was so traumatized by Brett's death and the life and the suffering. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. So I thought he was insane going out with me and I wanted him to break up with me. And I would say, delete my number, delete my number a thousand times a day. I would pack my bags and leave. I pushed him away in a million ways. You know, I cheated on him twice with other people and in the first, we were dating and it was a nightmare. And then he was just incredible, incredibly supportive and incredibly, I don't know, knowing that there was a good person he could see that I could not see. I did not know there was a good person in me at all at the time. I thought I was just a worthless, broken, sick, fat, constipated mess of a human. But he could see me when I couldn't see me. And he just kept holding up a mirror to me going, you know, I see this Corinne. I see this Corinne. I know that you don't see this Corinne, but I see this Corinne. She's in there. I see her. You know, I'll help you find her. And that sounds like woo-woo crazy talk, but he did see me when I couldn't see me. And so thankfully I had like an epiphany one day about his love and about how lucky I was. And from then things have been amazing, really amazing. I just had this like light bulb after a, a particularly bad form of, I think it was the last time, but that was a time I, I cheated on him and I was just like, oh my gosh, I was trying to push you away. I don't know everything I can to push you away. And now that I think I've pushed you away, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> I've made a huge mistake. Uh, and of course you're hurting someone who loves you and that you love. And so I'm, t- I, this story is a signpost as well. <laughs> you need to go on a whole food plant-based diet. <laughs> That's a bit of a stretch. But, I mean, I was just so rock bottom and I was behaving in such a bad way. You know, his friends were like, break up with her, break up with her, you know. Like, I was like, break up with me, break up with me. I am a mess. And and it, at, at that time, that's why I cheated on him two times in that period of those two years where we were first meeting and I was still a broken mess. And that last time, 
Eve, I think Ranjit was definitely like, all right, I think you've gone too far. And I was like, I've definitely gone too far. And for me, it was a light bulb moment. Like, wow, this person loves me and I'm pushing them away and making such terrible choices. That was, yeah, that was the start of me starting to this self-love journey. Um, even though that sounds ridiculous, that was the very beginning of me going, you know what, I need to earn his trust and his love again. I need to be the woman that he deserves because he's such a great, incredible, loving, kind man. So that was the beginning of of him showing me as well, you know, you're lovable and I see it. You just need to see it. And I was like, you know what, I'll try and I'll try for you and for us. So I never went back to deleting his number and I never did anything like that ever again after that. And I just continued to love him more and more and to adore him and to appreciate him as my husband. And my partner in this journey on this planet. So I'm so, so grateful to him for seeing me before I could see myself and for loving me before I could love myself, which was the most beautiful gift anyone could ever give anyone. So if you, you know, sometimes people don't come around. So I'm grateful that I did come around. He's like, I'm very grateful that he stuck around for me to come around because I mean, I guess not everyone comes around. So it's, a, it's, it's about loving him, loving himself as well to say, you know, maybe she wouldn't, maybe I'd never go, come around and knowing when that point is and saying, okay, I'm worth more than being treated like this, which he he is. He is worth so much more than being treated the way I treated him during those times. It's a long, complicated process, but I just wanted to talk about it because I think lots of people do push people away when they have chronic disease. And I wanted to let you know that I did too <laughs> for two whole years. I really pushed people away that I cared about. And my husband is one of them. This is an edit interruption <laughs> for this podcast because I really wanted to clarify here something. Now, I recorded this episode twice. So the second time, I didn't go into as much detail into this piece of my story because I just wanted to not make the episode so long. I didn't want to dwell in this period much. But in on reflection, it then makes it look like this just happened when we were dating and I just skipped over it and it was it was nothing, which it wasn't nothing. It still isn't nothing. It was a big deal. Like we were dating. It was early days. My brother had just died. I was in a I was very sick. I was in a very dark place. I guess that sounds like an excuse for my behavior. It wasn't. I went and got counseling. And what I wanted to say here is that I did go get counseling and I did get support. We did talk about it a lot. We did work through it a lot. It wasn't like it happened and then it was done and then it was forgotten. It is a constant feature and I, well, it's not a constant feature, but I mean, it's something that will always be with us in our relationship. And it's something that for me, I look back on and as a guidepost for a place that I never want to go to again in my life. And I haven't, and I hope never to, but that action did teach me that, you know, when I feel low to get support. So if you're listening and you're in that dark space and you're pushing those loved ones away, or you're doing things that don't align with your real values because that behavior doesn't align with my real values. It it never has, but sometimes you can be so lost and so far from your true self that 
you know, we can, as humans, you know, it might not, I don't drink alcohol, but lots of people drink alcohol when they're suffering to dull their suffering. Lots of people gamble when they're suffering. Lots of people do drugs when they're suffering. Like humans everywhere you turn are doing things that are damaging to their health and to their loved ones, whether it's because their health will deteriorate earlier down the track or because they're using food as a comfort food. They're all damaging. They're all damaging crutches. Now, obviously, cheating on a partner when we when you know we were only dating we weren't married we didn't have children anything like that. But, cheat, but cheating is damage is a damaging thing but it's it is in some ways no more damaging than all the other ways that humans punish and and harm ourselves and our loved ones with substances with food addictions with all kinds of addictive you know, self-destructive behaviors that we do. And so that's why I mentioned this here, even though it's been very confronting for a lot of people listening, I'm not condoning it. I have been cheated on before. I was cheated on by my very ever first boyfriend and another time after that. So twice in my life I've been cheated on. I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't great. I don't condone it. I don't suggest that it's a recommendation of mine to do this, but I wanted to talk about it because people do do things like this when we're sick, unwell, have low self-worth. And for me, the two times that I cheated on Ranjit when we were dating were because I wanted to end it, but I wanted him to end it because I didn't feel strong enough to end it myself. I thought if I did these things, he'll end it because eventually I'm going to be in a wheelchair. I'm going to be you know, needing him to be my carer. And I don't want him to end it then when it's too hard. And I don't want to see him as my carer. I don't want him to be, because I've been a carer for my brother. I watched him die. I don't didn't want Ranjit to watch me die or watch me suffer. I didn't want him to wipe my bottom. I didn't want him to bathe me. And I didn't want him to leave me when it got too hard or to be sitting in a corner crying because it was too hard, like we did with my brother. I didn't want any of that for him. So I thought if I did this, he would end it. And that sounds... I don't know how that sounds to you, and I'm sorry if it sounds wrong or extreme or harsh but that was my thinking that was my thinking I thought if I push if I do this he'll end it I won't have to because I'm not strong enough at the time at this time and then I'll move forward alone because that's how I thought my life would be alone I always thought that I would be alone end up alone that that was all the future that I could possibly hope for was to be alone and get sicker and sicker until I died So I did get support. I recommend you get support. I don't condone cheating in any way. I don't condone abusing yourself or hurting yourself in any way. If you can get help, please get help. Find a friend, phone a friend, tell your fears to your partner. You know, if I had have really sat down with Ranjit back at that time early on and said, these are my fears, maybe that would never have happened. But, you know, we're dating and you don't want to, even though I'm an oversharer, as you can see from this podcast, I just didn't, I didn't know how to say this is what I'm frightened of and I don't trust that you're strong enough to stand with me when this disease takes over me like it did for my brother Brett. So they were my fears and I should have talked about them with someone, at least a counsellor, a doctor, a friend, a family member, whoever. Ranjit, obviously, it would have been (laughs) ideal, but it's hard because you just... It's just a hard time. So I don't condone it. 
I am sorry that I made it seem like I skipped over it and that it was just brushed my hands off and we went on with our relationship without even a hair of sadness or grief or a struggle because we didn't. It was it was a long time of repairing those relationships and the friendships because our whole family knew, all our friendships, people knew, everyone knew. Like even though, even though we were dating, it was still a big deal and I still felt so ashamed and I had to then build all the trust for all of those friendships in our circle again and that took years. You know, it takes a long time to, you know, when you've hurt, someone's friend like in the way I did you know it took a lot so it wasn't it wasn't overnight it wasn't meaningless I'm sorry that it seemed that way it's just that it was the second time I had recorded it it's such a heavy podcast episode and so I just didn't want to go there's so much heaviness to go into I was just like oh this is the end this is like when things got better for me because I did hit rock bottom so yeah I apologize to anyone who might have found this triggering or hurtful I I have been where you are because I have been cheated on obviously I have done the cheating and I'm not proud of that moment in my life but I am proud of what it's taught me about myself and the person that I want to be and the person that I am now so yes anyway thank you enjoy the rest of the episode sorry for the interruption (laughs) but I needed to get that off my chest because I had been some hurt people commenting and messaging me and giving me um, some negative iTunes reviews and I even though I might still get those and that's okay I just wanted to really make sure I took the time to clarify that a little bit in this episode so thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the episode (laughs) but when I woke up numb from the waist down you know it was about almost a year after that instance with Rinjit and we um we were very, very committed and connected and it was a really important, powerful bonding experience for our relationship because I was in such a sad, scared, frightened place and he just loved me and held me and supported me in that place, which I feel so grateful for. But I was terrified. But that very day, I quit smoking. <laughs> that morning that I woke up, I quit smoking and I have not smoked ever since then. I was just like, that is it. I know I knew before but I wanted to be normal I wanted to be liked by my friends I wanted to eat the same things as my friends I thought I would be I already don't drink alcohol because I never grew adult taste buds so I was like if I don't smoke and if I don't eat junk food and meat and dairy and chocolate and cheese no one's gonna like me so I held on to it for four years and on that morning when I couldn't feel my legs I was like that was the dumbest decision you ever made Why didn't you see the signposts before now? Why did you keep doing these stupid things? And I know that they, that's a harsh thing to say. This is my own self-dialogue. Why did I wait until I couldn't feel my legs? I couldn't feel myself having sex. I couldn't feel anything to make this decision. And this is why I'm so, this is why this podcast exists, to prevent people from getting to getting used to hear the signposts, to getting used to see, okay, I don't have to, not only to help you if you are, or if your gun shot, if gun's already been fired and you already can't feel your legs, or you already had the heart attack, or you've already got pain from rheumatoid arthritis, or you've already got bleeding from your bowels from ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. Obviously, this podcast is for you because 
I want you to know how powerful diet is to these diseases. But it's for people before then, long before those guns go off and we end up with chronic disease. It's to say, you know, when you're constipated, when you're an overweight child, if your child's overweight now, it's a signpost. Headaches, a signpost. Asthma, signpost. Eczema, signpost. Candida, signpost. See them. It's your body going, hello, I'm very unhappy now. Please address what you're putting in my body. If your car starts rattling along, rattling along, rattling along, you're not going to, like, if you're broke, you're going to ignore it until it dies. But, I mean, if you can get a repair job or get someone in there, you're going to get someone to see it and you're going to say, what's the fuel you're using? I'm using a really crappy fuel. Maybe use a better fuel for a bit of a while. Humans are the same. Dogs and cats know what to eat. We keep feeding them now ridiculous shit they're not supposed to eat. You know, we feed cows truckloads of Skittles that are defective. We feed, you know, sheep and pigs loaves of baker's delights that are moldy. You know, like humans are doing bad shit to animals all the time. But animals, without the intervention of humans putting crazy shit into their diets, know what to eat. You know, they know when to fast. They know when to what their natural diet is and they eat that. It's only humans that decide to put these ridiculous foods into our bodies that aren't foods. These frankenfoods, Skittles, you know, Tim Tams, Twisties, Paddle Pops, Hot Cross, crazy chocolate swirl scrolls and croissants and ridiculousness into our bodies and think that it's going to be tip top you know this is the way we all it'll it'll all get pooped out in the end but it won't it just sticks in there and causes chronic disease going to your organs going to your heart going in your blood making us sick this is why i'm so crazy about it because i couldn't feel my vagina (laughs) I don't know about you, but most people's genitals are our number one places that we care about functioning (laughs) and mine did not work. Could not feel it. I'm just going to say a ridiculous joke that's very too much information, but I am a too much information type of person. I've already told you I scooped poop out myself, so I'm just going to, you know, keep going and tell you that when I was laying in bed crying one day with my husband, now he knows I've got a black sense of humour, so this wasn't inappropriate for me. It probably might be to someone else who hears this joke, but I found it very amusing and it took the edge off. And I said to him, I was crying and I said, baby, we're never going to be able to have sex ever again. Like, you can't stay with me. You need to be with somebody else. You know, I'm too sick. You can't be with me. And I was crying and crying and crying and crying in his arms. And he's just said, babe, we'll still be able to have sex. You just won't enjoy it. (laughs) And that made me laugh so much, even though it might might not make you laugh, but I thought it was hysterical. But he loved me no matter what. And he kept loving me no matter what. And I changed my diet. Then I went whole food plant-based. I was still including some fish and egg whites for the first, till my son was born and honey, because I was doing the overcoming multiple sclerosis version of a plant-based diet, which I still, if you're never, if, you know, if, if you're not willing to leave those things yet, you're listening to it and you're like, oh, do that first. You know, if you've got MS, definitely do that first. You know, if you want to eat those those foods because that's all you can manage right now because you're in the middle of grief, you're fearful, you're worried. Do that first. You know, if you can get to an MS retreat with George Jelinek or read the book, whatever, do all of that first. Um, but then, of course, this is a vegan podcast. So, of course, I'm going to say, 
ditch those animal products as fast as you possibly can because, well, firstly, the oceans are super poisoned with, um, with you know, poison. They're polluted. They're so polluted. The fish are so polluted and the fish want to live as well. So, and the chickens want to live and all those things. So obviously a whole food plant-based diet, not only is it for the animals, it's also for our health. It is optimal for our health and you can get the omega-3, all that you need in plant foods like flax, um, chia seeds, you know, flax, ground flax is the best. I have it every day. That's a great source of omega-3. Do that. You can get all your protein from plant-based foods. It's in, protein is in every single plant-based food. Your carbohydrates, your fats, you can get them all healthy fats from plant-based foods. Omega-3s from plant-based foods. You don't need the animal foods. It's better for the environment. It's better for your health, better for the planet. So I went on that straight away. I changed my diet. I started to do much more mindful pra- mindfulness practices. I started exercising. I was running. I was running when I never exercised since grade three when I quit netball. Grade two when I quit netball after three months. You know, I started running again. I lost weight. 25 kilos came off effortlessly. Ended up 35 kilos got lost. I gained a few pe- pounds back when I was pregnant. But it's all felt sort of falling away easily energy returned, constipation was gone. All the signposts slowly went away. You know, I didn't have headaches anymore. I didn't have fatigue constantly. You know, I used to nap. All my work 20s with me sleeping and functioning enough to go to uni or to go to work, sleeping, sleeping in between everything. I didn't go out with friends. I didn't socialize. I didn't drink at night. I didn't party in my 20s or 18s, teens. I just slept, ate, worked, studied, slept, ate, worked, studied. That's all I could do. I was in so much pain. So I can't stress how amazing it is to have energy. So I had energy. I felt amazing. I was no longer constipated. I no longer had headaches. I no longer had pain from fibromyalgia. I no longer had chronic candida. Now, somebody did ask me if I did a candida diet. I didn't. I just started eating healthy whole foods and naturally it just reset itself. I don't know. I didn't do it. Uh, I still ate plenty of fruit, tons of fruit. It still went away with fruit. So people who are avoiding fruit, it, it did go away from me. It may not. So maybe you'll need to elim- eliminate fruit and go more starchy potato diet for a while or maybe whatever works for you on a plant-based diet. There's so many different varieties of a whole food plant-based diet that work for people as far as low fat. You know, you can do mostly the starch, starch one or mostly – still always <clears> – <throat> starches are always the king. Um, potatoes are always my favorite and whole grains. But um, they worked for me and I never had any relapses since. So that was 10 years ago, this August coming up. So unless you're listening to this after this August, it's 2018 August I'm talking about. And so it's now June. So in two months from now, I'll be 10 years symptom and relapse free of MS, of fibromyalgia, of all of those signposts. You know, I'm no longer obese. I no longer have any of those symptoms. I now meditate, I run, I do yoga, I chase after my kids. And I never thought I would be able to have kids. So this is just such an incredible change for me, Um, which is why I'm, as I said, this is why this message is for me, my purpose to get this message out to as many people and to help support as many people as I can to adopt this plant-based diet through my own work, my own website, my own coaching my own programs and courses and the ebooks coming out and this book's coming out. You know, I am so excited to share this book with all of these hope stories in it with people. It's so close now, like it's getting, I just want to get 
I just would like so many stories in there. So I'm mostly just, it's mostly been delayed purely based on my greed that I want as many recovery stories in there from as many different diseases as possible for you. So that it just gives such a huge amount of credibility to this way of eating because these anecdotal you know, stories are powerful. The people's stories and the doctors on this podcast so far their information and their knowledge is powerful knowledge and I want the two to be combined to form this incredible resource for people who are living with chronic disease or who are trying to avoid chronic disease themselves. So life is so different for me. I'm in a beautiful, loving relationship where I have work every day on building my own self-confidence because it's a long journey and I don't want you to think that it's all done because I'm still working on my self-confidence. I'm still working over through food addiction because you don't become obese without an element of food addiction. You know what I mean? I beca- Those foods are addictive. You know, if you've read The Pleasure Tra- Trap by Doug Lyle and Dean Ornish, those foods are super addictive. They're, they tra- they literally trap us into con- consuming them in excess constantly. So I've been dealing with that for a long time and I'm still dealing with a food, food addiction, even though I eat a low-fat, whole food, plant-based diet. I still have issues with food addiction, which is a long journey. It's a long journey. Um, you know, if you know Andrew Taylor, you can do his Spud Fit Challenge. He's a great, great person to speak to about food addiction and overcoming food addiction. So the spudfit.com website is incredible for that. And his challenge has changed so many people's lives. My three tips, I think I've given you enough, but my three tips would be, one would be taking some time each day to spend in gratitude, to work on talking, changing your self-talk. One of the things I've been learning recently in my own journey is to catch the negative thought that you're saying about yourself or about your health or about your weight, to catch it and say, flip it around. So if you're saying to yourself, oh my gosh, I'm worthless. Look at me. I'm so sick and overweight. Look at me. I'm never going to be healthy. I'm never going to be this or that. To catch yourself and tell yourself to switch the thought to a positive one. So say, you know, I'm eating so much wonderful, healthy, whole plant foods today. I'm feeling so great in my body. Or to say to yourself, you know what? I love the body that I have. I thank you for carrying me and helping me to experience the love of my family and friends. Or, you know, to catch yourself saying some 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 nasty thing to yourself and just switch it around to a loving thing. You know, I love you. Thank you for, you know, giving birth to Theo and bringing him into the world and doing such an amazing job, body. I'm so grateful to you for allowing me to bring Iggy into the world and to love him so much, you know, or just some twist on that. And I know that might sound crazy, but if you start that practice of just catching those negative thoughts or catching, putting money back into your bank, as far as we spend all of the money in negative thoughts, but if our negative thoughts were cash, we'd be bankrupt by the end of the day. So trying to put back in that money through positive thoughts, positive, loving thoughts to yourself, because I really believe that for me, self-love is such a huge part in adopting and committing to a whole food plant-based diet because if you're bankrupt (laughs) if you're bankrupt from all the mean horrible things you say to you said to yourself for like the 30 plus years of your life or however many years you've been on this planet 
it's really hard to believe in yourself when you're saying, I, I, I want to commit to a whole food plant-based diet because you're like, I don't believe you. I don't trust you. I don't love you. I don't like you. Why would I do these things? So putting that stuff back into you, which is part of what I work I do when I do my 22-day challenges with my clients or when I do my six-month programs with my clients is to talk. Diet is secondary to a lot of the things that we can't master diet if the rest of our life is in complete and utter chaos and misery. You know, it's really tricky. You know, it's really good to start from a place of where can we put back more joy? So my next tip would be where can you put back some more joy? What in your life do you know that you could change today that would add more happiness into your life, some more completeness, make you feel more like you're traveling in the right direction that you want to go in in your life? You know, is that starting a yoga practice? When could you put it in? Schedule it into your calendar. When can you find time for it? Make that time. When can you get your can you, can you get your kids babysat, minded, looked after? Can you do it when they're asleep? Can you do it before they wake up? How can you fit it in? Fit it in and then lock it into your calendar so an alarm goes off to remind you to do it and block it out every single day forever. Or is it need to drink more water? Just recently I've added water alerts telling me to drink water every hour. It goes off. I put one that's not one, the one I used initially was a bit like, I'm going to have a heart attack if my water alarm keeps going off. <laughs> so I've made one that's a bit more gentle. But um, a water alarm to go off saying, you know, I want to drink more water because water's so important and just have it go off every hour from eight a, you know, 7 a.m. until 7 p.m. It sounds insane, but it's really helped increase my water intake. I highly recommend it. But just where can you make a positive change? today to get you started and then do that for you know 22 days or whenever it takes sometimes it takes 60 something days to form a habit or six months and then add in the next one and then maybe you need a career change what can you study start looking into what you could study or how you could change careers today just start googling start looking at thinking about what your where your passions are how you could make your passion into a profitable business what you could do differently all of those things start to fill out your, you know, the wheel of your life. The, you know, are your relationships broken? How could you address that? Do you need to communicate, go to counseling? Do you need to go on more dates together? Do you need to get a babysitter so you can go on more dates together? Just starting to, rather than just ignoring all of the little symptoms in your life that are also impacting on your ability to make great eating choices, start addressing them. <laughs> like that might sound like I'm being patronizing, but you have to start addressing them. Like those issues, you just put your fingers, we all just put, I did too, put our fingers in our ears and close our eyes and go, la, 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 hoping that, you know, the job we hate will get better or the relationship that sucks that we're in will get better or the, the you know, the behavior relationship with our child will get better or that our body will suddenly be toned. We have to actually do the work and that work can be super confronting and it is and it's super challenging and it's, ongoing forever because you know you'd get all the plates spinning and the first plate starts to fall away and you have to run back to the start and start it again that's just life it's not about getting them all in balance at once it's just about be constantly being mindful of where areas aren't in balance and seeing what you can do to put some more joy back in because that has a ripple effect on how you eat the third tip so you've got switching your thoughts and then Taking some steps to add some more joy into your life is number two. The third tip is add in more whole plant foods. This is a whole plant foods 
podcast and adding in. So it's crowding out. If you're still eating meat, eggs, dairy, honey, it's about crowding out those foods. Now, you might think, I love those foods. I don't want to crowd them out. <laughs> Please crowd them out. If you've listened, if you listened this far, crowd them out for your health. You know, it's a massive difference. It's night and day for all of my guests, how we felt when we were eating animal products, the suffering and disease and, you know, hormone-filled animal products and saturated fat-filled animal products to how we feel now that we're eating whole plant foods. Also, it's reducing our impact on the planet, on climate change. It's doing a huge act of kindness to the animals. It's a wonderful, loving thing to do for yourself as well. So it's a, has a, it's a no-lose benefit to everyone. So adding more food. So when you're cooking your pasta, you know, throw some veg, extra veggies in with the pasta water. If you don't want to have, don't want to dirty a pot, just put the extra veggies in with your pasta as it's cooking. Well, not, not at the start because it doesn't take as, as long, but, you know, putting some veggies in with the pasta water or, um, you know, whole grain pasta or, um, you know, adding a big salad on the side and having it, making a big enough salad on Sunday that it lasts for a few days and you can add it to every single meal and crowd out the other things that you would have had more of, like, you know, cheesy potatoes or meat and eggs and omelettes and things like that, you know, crowding it out with salads or stir fries or veggies or beans or whatever it is, crowding it, always crowding it out with plants. When you're snacking, you know, choosing a vegetable, you know, veggie sticks and hummus or an apple or a banana, always, as doctor, I interviewed a doctor yesterday, which isn't going to be out before this, but he was talking about, you know, just always default choice to the healthier option. You know, if you're at a restaurant, what's the very healthiest thing you could choose on this menu? What's the very you know, the most vegetarian, healthiest things on this menu? Or at a friend's house, or if you're at a friend's house, you know, eating all the veggies and just saying, "I'm too full to eat the meat." You know, I'm too full to eat the cheese. I'm so sorry. I just I had a big lunch or I had a big thing and I I just can't eat this bit of animal products that are on this plate. I've eaten all the veggies and I feel so stuffed. Sorry about that. Thank you so much for this meal, though. It looked amazing. Just crowding it out, crowding it out with vegetables, always making a choice of the healthier choice with the most whole plant foods that you can. And try and make it easy. So number four, always try to make it easy, make it simple. Pick foods that you know you can make, that you know that you like, that you know taste delicious. Find recipes online, vegan versions, whole food plant-based versions of, you know, spag bowl, of pasta or of curry or of salads or whatever it is you like breakfasts oatmeal whatever it is however you can make it whole foods just find the vegan version of things that you already like and then makes it so much simpler and and eat those foods and try and get family support and friends support if you can but if you can't find support online find support i've got a group called Women Thriving Plant-Based. My website, corinneninja.com. You can ask me anything there online in the contact section or you can message me on Messenger at Ninja. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ninja. So that's C-O-R-I-N-N-E-N-I-J-J-E-R. I run six-month programs. You can um, book yourself in for a 60-minute consult or 50-minute consult. I don't know how long it is. It's a, it might have even been 30-minute consult. I have no idea. But whatever long consult we need to talk about your issues, that's how long the consult is. It's on the contact section of the website. And I think there's buttons on the website that you can click to get your free. It's a free session. We can just chat. There's no expectation of you to sign up with me or to work with me. I normally do programs that last for six months. I'm about to release an eight-week program coming soon. 
I also have the 22 day challenge. If you'd like to do that, we can talk about that as well. But if you don't want to do any of that, you can just join the Facebook group, Women Thriving Plant Based. And that is all for this week. That is all for this episode. Thank you all from the bottom of my heart for listening. Thank you all for subscribing. If you haven't yet subscribed, they put out new episodes every Sunday slash Monday, except this week, which was late because of everything, having to do it again. You can follow this podcast on social media at Facebook at the When Life Gives You Lemons Go Vegan Facebook page. You can like it, follow it. I put updates, new guests, new episodes, everything there. So follow that page if you like. You can listen to it on iTunes and Stitcher app for Android or on my website, corinneja.com. And what else did I have to say? Oh, if you could, please like If you share this podcast, that would be amazing. Share it with all your friends and family who may have MS or maybe starting to have the signposts to getting chronic disease, which we talked about in this episode, because there's signposts. If your friend's always complaining about their health or niggling ailments, you're like, hey, baby, this is a signpost. This is a signpost. This is a signpost. Don't wait until you have the heart attack or the ulcerative colitis or the PCOS or the endometriosis or whatever it is. Just change your diet today. Yes, but what I'm asking is if you sharing it would be an amazing gift to me. Thank you so much. But if you could also head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating, which sounds like I'm asking a lot because you're like, this is only a two-star podcast. But please, five stars is what I need. (laughs) And a kind review, not a crappy review, a kind review because I am doing my best, but mostly because these reviews and these ratings help people find this podcast. It makes it more visible online and that's I want more people to find this podcast I'm desperate for people to more find for find this podcast not for my own ego but for their own health um, to spread this message to help support this movement of people healing themselves and healing their bodies with from chronic disease with a low-fat whole food plant-based diet this movement could change the health of the planet save money so much money that's going into sick care moving it into healthy prosperous and incredible people who can help heal the planet. I would rather all the money that's now got billions and billions and trillions of dollars that are going into keeping people in the status quo of illness and sickness to be going into healthy people who can then go on with their healthy bodies to like most of my guests here have gone on with the healthy bodies that they now have to help others to create coaching programs, online programs, books to write, you know, to author, to create their own services, to, you know, promote veganism, to help the animals, to help the planet. You know, healthy people do incredible things. Sick people tend not to do as many incredible things because it sucks being sick. I didn't do any incredible things. Well, I did. You know, you're still doing some incredible things. I know that if you're sick, listen to this, you're like, I'm still doing incredible things. I'm still a mother. I'm still a partner. I'm still, you know, I know you are, but you can do so many more incredible things when you don't feel horrific, which is what I'm trying to say in the most kind way possible, but I'm just terrible at my mouth just makes sounds. (laughs) So please, a five-star rating and a kind review helps spread this message to more people. And that's what I would like. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in a week with Dr. Andrew Davies from the ICU. He's an ICU doctor and he is keen and passionate about helping people to stay out of intensive care. So his episode is not to be missed. So thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Dr. Andrew Davies. If you're listening for your interview, it was wonderful. I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.